Well, this morning's story uh, in Matthew 14 is found in three of the four gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, and John, which is actually kind of an unusual combination of the three, record this story. And in all three of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John, this story is preceded by the exact same story. And the story before the story that we're going to look at this morning is the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And at the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus takes five loaves and two fish and prays over it and blesses it. And then miraculously, it feeds well over 5,000 people. And, and the crowds and the disciples witness Jesus' power and his compassion and this incredible miracle as he fed the multitude. But when that miracle was completed, neither the crowds nor the disciples grasped who Jesus really was. And understanding who Jesus really is is actually the most important thing about you and me. More important than our job, our, our, our income, our pedigree, uh, our family. More important than any of those things is what do you and I actually believe about who Jesus is? And after the feeding of the 5,000, which is recorded in all four of the Gospels, People think they know who Jesus is, but they don't quite see him right. And I think that's why Matthew, Mark, and John record this story next. So let's look at this in Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 33. Jesus immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. This was the crowd that had gathered because he had fed them after he was teaching them. After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, Jesus was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, which is 3 to 6 a.m., he came to them walking on the sea. Now, I just want to stop here because for some people, you've already, this is already a problem, <laughs> You're already like, oh, okay, so we're doing fairy tale this morning in church, right? Jesus walking on the water. People struggle with this, and I understand. However, let me just say, if you have room for a God who's created the heavens and the earth, if you have room for a God who became man and gave his life for the forgiveness of our sins, then this is not that big of a hang-up. Recently, my oldest daughters went to see the new Ant-Man movie, and they came back afterwards complaining about something in the movie that was not realistic, And I said, really? You know it's not documentary. Like, <laughs> this is a movie about a man who puts a suit on <laughs> and can become the size of an ant. And you're, you you've, you've kind of are frustrated by something unrealistic in the plot. All right, let's keep reading. <laughs> and in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. The story is about a storm, right? And there are literal storms in our lives, and there are metaphorical storms in our lives. And we, living in Syracuse, we're familiar with both, right? 
We're familiar with literal storms. Many of us mark our lives by specific storms. You'll hear older people, including myself, i got to lump myself in there now because I remember this, talking about the blizzard of 93. The blizzard of 93. I don't want to jinx anything, but it came in March. <laughs> and I was a newspaper boy back then, and I remember crawling on my hands and knees over what felt like six feet of snow just to get the Sunday paper to people's homes. We know what literal storms are like, but... We also know what metaphorical storms are like, and the truth is, is that if we could choose between the two, we would choose the literal storms over the metaphorical storms, the emotional storms. We would choose the storms around us over the storms within us. And what I think we often wonder when we're in these storms is, where is Jesus in this storm? Where is Jesus in this storm? What Matthew does here, though, is he challenges that question. He says it's actually the wrong question to ask. The question we should ask, or we should not ask, is where is Jesus in the storm? The question we should learn to ask is who is Jesus in the storm? Not where is he, but who is he? And so this morning, we're going to look at this text and we're going to learn three things about who Jesus is in the middle of a storm. And the first thing is this that Jesus is sovereign in the storm. He is sovereign, he's overall, he's in control, he's in charge in the storm. The story started with this simple phrase. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get in the boat and go before him to the other side. Now, that verb, make, is a forceful verb in the Greek. It means to force someone, to compel someone. This was not a suggestion. Jesus didn't suggest his disciples, maybe you guys should just get in the boat and get out of here. Jesus made them get in the boat. He forced them in the boat. And it leaves us at the beginning of this story with this tension. Hold on. Jesus sent them into the storm. Why? Well, John's account of these two stories provides some level of insight. Because in John's account, he gives us a little more detail about what happened after Jesus fed the crowd. After Jesus fed the crowd, the crowd came looking for Jesus. And they immediately wanted to make him king. They, they had their miraculously filled stomachs, and they were very excited about what Jesus did. And they're thinking, if he can do this, what else can he do? And as soon as they had finished their meals, the crumbs were being wiped from their mouths, and they were like, he's the king. Let's make him the king. And Jesus knew that his disciples could not be around that. That was going to poison their hearts and poison their minds. Because Jesus did not come to be the king that the people wanted him to be. That hope or that expectation was a dangerous one. And so Jesus needs them to get away from it, and he makes them leave. He forces them into a boat, into a lake where a storm is coming, because there's actually a more dangerous storm brewing in the hearts of the crowd. Our youngest daughter, Madeline, who has cerebral palsy, she's had multiple surgeries throughout her life. And last summer, she had a very intensive surgery called tendon lengthening where they go and they intentionally cut the back of her tendons, her tendons, her Achilles tendon, and the tendons behind her knee so that her, her legs will flex better and that her feet can be straight and so that she avoids bigger future issues as she grows. And, of course, anytime you have surgery, the surgeons, if they're doing their job well, they, they list to you all the potential risks, Right? There's the possibility of this. There's the chance of this. There's 5% chance of this. Sometimes this happens, and they're giving you all the risks, and they're listing for you all the potential dangers. Yet we go into those surgeries, and we embrace those dangers because sometimes there's some dangers that are more dangerous than other dangers. And Jesus knew that the biggest danger for the disciples was that they would lose sight of who he actually was, that with their stomachs full 
and with their minds filled with dreams of what it was going to be like to reign in a kingdom where the king could feed the poor miraculously at any moment, Jesus sent them into a danger to protect them from a greater danger. I wonder if sometimes when we look back at life, we see Jesus sending us into storms to save us from a greater storm. Because the greatest danger to you and I is not what happens to our bodies, but what is happening to our souls. So even in the storm, Jesus is sovereign. This story that we read does not happen despite Jesus. This story happens because of Jesus. And so here's what it means for you and I this morning. We cannot believe that just because we find ourselves this morning in a storm, that God is any less sovereign, any less in control. The same Jesus, weeks ago we talked about Jesus in the wilderness, remember? being tempted by the devil. The same Jesus who was led by the Spirit into the wilderness now leads his disciples, sends his disciples into a storm. Now, this is not the first time that the disciples find themselves in a storm. Six chapters earlier in Matthew 8, the disciples are in a storm much like this storm. Actually, I think it's the same lake. And Jesus is sleeping in the boat. Do you remember the story? And they say to Jesus, don't you care about we're going we're gonna to perish and wake up? And Jesus stands up and says, be quiet, shut up to the wind and to the waves, and the sea is calm like glass. But something different in Matthew 14. Jesus isn't with them this time. He isn't in the boat. So where is Jesus? Well, that night, he was praying. He went up onto the mountain, and he was praying. Why did Jesus leave the crowd, send his disciples, and go up a mountain to pray. And we don't know for sure, but based on what the devil tried to tempt, tried to tempt Jesus with in the wilderness, and based on what the crowd was trying to do to Jesus, my guess is that Jesus on some level needed to pray through the temptation again to a crown without a cross. He had to submit himself again to the Father's will and to trust the Father's plan. And I believe that Jesus is doing, did for them that night what he's doing for you and me even right now. He is praying for us. The scriptures say that Jesus is seated at the right-hand side of the Father, where he lives forever to make intercession for you and me. So when you're wondering, where is Jesus in my storm? We know where he is. He's seated at the right-hand side of the Father, and he's praying for you, that you would trust him even in the storm. I don't know if you're familiar with the art form of a tapestry, but a tapestry is a form of textile art where many threads are kind of interlaced and woven on a loom. I got a picture of a tapestry here for you. I don't have this skill or, honestly, the interest to do this, but many people do. And if you look at a finished tapestry from the front side there on the left, uh, it, it depicts a picture. It's supposed to be a form of art. It's supposed to be something that you would uh, maybe hang on a wall. But if you turn the tapestry over and you look at the backside, what you see looks completely chaotic. Makes no sense. It has actually no resemblance. You couldn't look at the back and guess what's on the front. And the backside actually may be ugly. One of the convictions that we have because of Scripture is that God is weaving together a beautiful story that he calls redemption, a tapestry. And on our side, we may see a chaotic storm. But on his side, there is a sovereign plan. There is a sovereign God. And he is working all things out for our good. Jesus is sovereign in the storm. And whatever storm you find yourself in this morning, I want to just encourage you with that truth that he sees you. He's praying for you. And he is with you. Second thing we learn about Jesus is that Jesus is speaking in the storm. 
The disciples are about three miles into the lake, a lake that is about five to eight miles wide, depending on where you're crossing it. It's the fourth watch of the night, so it's 3 to 6 a.m. Here's what it means. The disciples who left at sunset have been battling this storm, think about this, for nine hours. Nine hours, they have gone three miles. These are experienced fishermen. These are men who know what to do in a boat. This is how bad the storm is. Imagine their level of frustration and exhaustion and their fears and is this ever going to end? They probably have a sense this is not even normative, what we're dealing with right now. Nine hours, three miles in the middle of a lake and then all of a sudden they look up and something is coming at them on the water. And they cry out, it's a ghost, which is the Greek word phantasma. And the word phantasma is not like it's Casper the friendly ghost. (laughs) This is like time to call the Ghostbusters ghosts. This, is, this word phantasm means an evil spirit. And in Roman culture, Roman Greco culture, ghosts were usually a sign of impending doom. If you saw an evil spirit coming your way, then death was drawing near. And vision seeing the grim reaper show up in the middle of the night. And that's what the disciples think they see. But then they hear a voice. And Jesus speaks. And he says, take heart, or do not fear, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now that phrase, it is I, which the ESV translates, it is I, it actually can have a couple meanings. And the first one is sort of like, it's a, you know my voice. You know, when I, when I go home, we've taught our girls, like, you don't open the, you don't unlock the door for strangers, you don't open the door, you ask who it is. And so sometimes I'll come into the garage, I'll knock on the garage door, it's locked, and Caroline will come to the door and she'll say, who is it? And I don't always say it's dad. I'll just say it's me because she knows my voice. And in a way, Jesus is doing that here. He's saying, it's me. You know my voice. But there's actually something more happening here because the most straightforward formula in the Greek for translating what Jesus says is the phrase, I am. I am. Now, here's what's happening. Jesus speaks and he tells them, Take heart, have courage, don't be afraid. He gives them a directive to not be afraid, which is fine, but actually useless, unless there's a reason not to be afraid. But he also gives them the reason, because he says to them, I am. And this phrase, I am, is the phrase that God used most frequently in revealing himself in the Old Testament. Genesis 17:1, I am God Almighty. In Isaiah, he says, I am the one who blots out your transgressions. And again, I am the Lord, there is no other. Most famously at the burning bush with Moses, God tells Moses, I am who I am. Say to the people of Israel, Exodus 3:14, I am has sent you. He uses I am as his personal name here. He says in Exodus 3:6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And so in the storm, when the disciples hear Jesus speaking, he says, I am, he's not just saying, You know my voice, he's saying, You know who I actually am. And what's really interesting is that this divine self-identification phrase of I am is combined by the prophet Isaiah. Or in Isaiah, it's combined in a few different places with the phrase, fear not. 
So it's not unusual. These men knew the Old Testament scriptures. They knew that often when God said, I am, it came along with the instructions to fear not. I want you just to see this short passage from Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 3a. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Look at this. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Why can he say this? Because of verse 3. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. In the center of this storm, Jesus is speaking, and he's saying to them, I am. I'm so much more than you thought I was when you saw me feed the crowds. I am God. What's interesting is that as Jesus says these words in the center of the storm, his moment of speaking in Matthew's account is actually right literally and literarily in the center of this story. The phrase, take heart, it is I, it is I or I am, before that in the story, there's 91 words in the Greek. And after that phrase, there's 91 words in the Greek. It is structurally in the dead center of this story, which whether Matthew intended it or not, of course, we don't really know. But we can certainly get this sense that this is the point in which the story hinges. This is the truth that we need to get, that when Jesus walks into our storms and says, fear not, he doesn't say, fear not, because you got it in you. He doesn't say, fear not, because you're going to figure it out. He doesn't even say, fear not, because the storm is going to go away. Jesus, when he said, I am, he had done nothing yet about their problems. He had done nothing to change their circumstances. He had not spoken to the storm yet. But before he spoke to the storm, he wanted to speak to his children. And I think sometimes when we're walking in storms, we want God to speak to our storms, and he's trying to speak to us in the midst of our storms. But we can't hear his voice. Jesus comes and says, I am. The first thing he wants the disciples to know is not what he's about to do for them, but who he is to them. Now, with stories like this and any stories in the Gospels, we have to be careful not to allegorize this story because it actually factually happened But I do want us to pull one truth out for ourselves this morning. Jesus speaks to us in our storms. In our storms, he reminds us of who he is, what he has done, and then calls for us to respond to fear not because of who he is. How does God speak? He speaks to us first and foremost through his word, through his scripture, through the Bible. When you find yourself in a storm, an emotional storm, a relational storm, a a, a physical health storm, a, a, a mental health storm, when you find yourself in a storm, position yourself to hear his voice. Don't push away from his word. Lean into his word. His word is truth and it is life. He speaks to us through his word. He speaks to us through his spirit. The same spirit who inspired the writing of the scriptures is present when you read the scriptures to illuminate its truth and its meaning to your heart. So he speaks to us through his word, through his spirit, but then also he speaks to us through each other, through his people to encourage one another, which is why we need community gathering like this because we need to hear his voice through each other and for each other. Listen to his voice in the storm. I am, fear not. And then the last thing that we learn in this story about Jesus is this, that Jesus is saving in the storm. I'm going to ask Pastor Anthony to join me. As I mentioned earlier, this is the second time Jesus has rescued his disciples from a storm at sea. First time, Jesus is in the boat. He's having a nice nap. The disciples wake him up, and they say, save us, Lord. We are perishing. And this second storm kind of resembles the first. But as I said earlier, the, this time Jesus is outside of the boat. He's not inside of the boat. 
And all of a sudden, Peter is outside of the boat. And Peter cries out as he begins to sink. And Peter actually, when he cries out to Jesus, as he begins to sink, he uses the same Greek words that were used in Matthew chapter 8. When the men said, when the disciples said, Jesus, save us, we're perishing. Peter, in a, in a somewhat shorter version of it, probably because he was literally going under the water, he just yelled out, Lord, save me. Jesus saves him and says to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, I want to talk about Peter for a second. It's easy and common to make this story about Peter. But this story is not about Peter. See, there are lesser lessons that we can learn here about Peter, but this story is about Jesus. And in fact, if you look at Matthew, Mark, and John, Mark and John, in the exact same story, don't even talk about Peter. This is the only account in which we know that Peter had his encounter with Jesus out on the waters. What does this mean for us? It means that while we can learn things from Peter, our point in learning the story, studying the story, and letting the Spirit use this story to speak to our hearts is not, don't be like Peter. That's not the lesson here. See, the failures of the disciples and the shortcoming of Peter, they are the context for the lesson. They are the setting for the lesson of this passage, but they are not the lesson themselves. Yes, Peter, I think if we're honest, Peter represents you and me, right? Great faith, one second. Great. Deep doubts the next. You been there? Like, I'm going to follow you. Whatever you say, I'm going to go. And then all of a sudden, you start looking around at circumstances and challenges, your past and your present and your future, and you begin to sink in your doubt and your despair. And so, yeah, I can relate. I'm like Peter. Faith one moment, doubt the next. I'm the man who says to Jesus, I believe, but by the way, help my unbelief because I'm made up of both, right? We get that. But don't miss the point. The point is this, Jesus still saved him. Jesus didn't sit back and go, all right, let's see if he can muster up faith again and just like rise back out of the water. Jesus didn't say, oh man, if you just had enough faith to get to me, this would have worked out well, but look at you. You're gonna be a powerful lesson for the disciples for the rest of their lives. They're gonna remember when Peter lost his faith in me and he sank and he died in the waters and it will, it'll inspire them to have faith in me. He didn't. As Peter sank, all he could cry out. He didn't have time to put together a very convincing argument. He didn't have time to prove himself. He didn't have time to put together an elaborate, articulate prayer. <laughs> Sometimes the best prayers are us sinking and screaming, save me, save me. Peter only had a little faith in that moment, but the reason why he was saved because his little faith rested on the right object. See, we're not saved by the amount of our faith. We're saved by the object of our faith. You can have the smallest amount of faith, but if it's in Jesus, he can reach into your storm and he can save you. Matthew's message is not, Peter failed, do not be like Peter. No, the passage teaches that Peter's failure did not bring about catastrophe or Peter's end. Because Jesus, even though Peter may have failed Jesus, Jesus did not fail Peter. And here's the point of this whole message this morning. It says that in the storm, although Peter took his eyes off of Jesus, Jesus never took his eyes off of Peter. And whatever storm you find yourself in, Jesus is present to save. And when he walks into your storm to save you, it's not going to be because you were so faithful in keeping your eyes on Jesus. It's going to be because he was so faithful to keep his eyes on you. 
that for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, and He suffered the shame, and He laid aside the glory because we were so good at keeping our eyes on Him. No, we're terrible keeping our eyes on Him. We're just like Peter. But Jesus is so faithful to keep His eyes on us. That even when we're sinking and we can do nothing yell, but as we're drowning, we can do nothing else but just yell out, save me. Jesus saves us. And the story ends like this. Those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. Now in Matthew 8, when Jesus calmed the seas and and the winds and the waves, they said, what sort of man is this? They didn't worship him. They wondered about him. But this time, they worship him. They say, truly, He's the son of God. Now, how did they now know? Let me finish with this thought. In the scriptures and in this culture and in this society, the sea represented forces of evil because it was powerful, it was uncontrollable, it was deadly. It was an evil thing. And in scripture, and again, in this culture, at this time in history, the sea was a power of which only God could have power over it. No mortal man or woman, no human person had any power over the sea. Only God could have power over the sea. Think of the Old Testament stories of the the crossing and the closing of the Red Sea. Think of the way that God used the sea in the story of Jonah. Think of the passages where in Exodus 9, 1 Kings 18, Psalms 18, Jonah 1 and 2, where it says that the Lord summons storms and he rescues his people from them. And here the disciples see Jesus walking on the sea, Jesus controlling the sea, Jesus sovereign in every storm, Jesus speaking in every storm, Jesus saving in every storm. And I wonder if they thought of the words of Job in Job 9.8 where Job is talking about God and he says, God alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Jesus here walks upon the waves, tramples a storm, something no mere man can do or has ever done. He is sovereign, he is speaking, he is saving. Who is he in the storm? Who is he in your storm? He's God. He's God. He's overall. He's speaking to you. Take heart. Do not fear. Don't give up. Don't lose hope. I am. And he's saving. He's saving because it's his nature to keep his eyes on you in every storm. Let's pray together this morning.